according to St. John, the second chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. The assembly may be seated. Grace, hope, peace, and glory be to you from God, our Creator, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As pastor, I have the honor and privilege of walking with our community through all of life's passages, whether it be the birth of a child, the baptism of a, of a child, maybe it's the death of a loved one, or even, yes, weddings. I've done a lot of weddings in the first seven or so uh, years of my career, dozens probably at this point. And, and actually, I really love the process of preparing. I love getting to know the couples. I love to hear their stories. I love to imagine with them what's different once you are married. What changes? How is God a part of this relationship? How am I a part of this relationship moving forward? And while I love the process, I hate the pomp. I'm not really into all of the pomp and circumstance that goes into the planning of a wedding the planning and the costs, and let's be honest, sometimes the conflicting personalities that arise when doing said planning. It happens from time to time, believe it or not. And what it oftentimes results in then is very high levels of anxiety. Why? Because these couples are anxious because what they want more than anything is the perfect wedding. Right? And it's usually when that kind of thing is said that then I give my best pastoral advice I can give. Right? A perfect wedding makes not a perfect marriage. Right? Those are two very, very different sorts of things we're talking about. That being said, that doesn't stop websites like perfectweddings.com from existing. And if you were to say meander your way over there, as I did, you will find that their service is pretty straightforward. They will connect you to 28 unique types of professionals that you need to make your day perfect. 28 different types of professionals you can contract with to make your wedding perfect. Here's the thing. My wife gave birth to twins and there weren't 28 professionals involved. I don't think you need 28 professionals to make a perfect wedding. And nowhere on there did I see bouncy houses either. So there should be at least 29, in my opinion, for a perfect wedding to exist. But it doesn't mean we don't try for it. And the truth of the matter is, 
weddings, quite often, like life, is just not quite perfect, right? Things happen. Today, we get to see that play out, right? We see it play out in this wedding celebration in Cana, a celebration that Jesus and his 12 disciples have found themselves attending. A, a moment, a location where Jesus will be revealing himself in the trueness of God's glory for the first time in this first sign early in John's gospel. But before we go any further, I can't help it. Every time I've ever read this text, right, and I hear that Jesus and the disciples were guests at this wedding, I like to picture, like, Jesus getting that RSVP card. And he gets, like, the plus one, and he goes, yeah, no, and he puts a two behind it. And he takes his plus 12 with him. To me, that's how this story plays out. And so Jesus and his plus 12 show up. They show up on day three, which is significant. Because weddings back then were very big deals, as they are now, sometimes lasting as long as seven days. Seven days of celebration in the groom's household. So not even halfway through, potentially, Jesus and his disciples show up. Not only do they show up, but they show up, and it looks like the party is already drawing to an early close because they've drawn the last bit of wine out. And it's in that moment, right? It's in that location. It's in that place of need that Jesus' mother steps up, looks at him, and says, go and help them out. He'll take care of the problem. And that's the sort of thing only a mother could do, right? Sees a problem and tells you to go fix it as the child happens all the time. And she does it with this sort of bravado and this confidence, like she's certain he's going to be able to do it. And what's always kind of bothered me, though, is Jesus's response to her directive, right? Because this is, this is what Jesus says, mind you. Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. I don't know about you, but I would never say that to my mom. I just wouldn't do it. I know better. My mama rose, you know, rose me right. I, I, you don't say that to mom, right? And so one of the things that's always bothered me is, is that, that response that Jesus gives. What I've realized over years of of pondering this text and preaching on this text, of of reading and researching commentaries, Jesus' response from a social and cultural perspective is actually quite appropriate, right? It may sound sort of jarring to our modern ears, but this is a normal response for a child to their mother, especially in that set of circumstances in that time. And Jesus even sort of, what he's trying to do is sort of disassociate himself, right? He's trying to say like, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to help you, right? And, and truthfully speaking, growing up, I tried the same tactic, right? Where I was asked to do something I didn't really want to do. So what I do, I'd kind of just try to back my way out of it. But like any good mother, Mary simply turns around and says, he'll take care of it. And she's moved on. She's turned her back. There's not a conversation to be had here, Jesus. You're going to do it. Moving on, right? Again, as any good mother would do. But that's the thing, right? So so my problem I've come to realize isn't so much my, my feelings about what Jesus says. It's about the larger theological issue that I think looms from what he says. It's this idea of divine reluctance, as I've come to, to phrase it. Divine reluctance. Here, here's what I mean. How many of you in your life have ever said, yeah, that's not my problem when something has happened? Have you ever said that's not my problem? Okay. If you didn't raise your hand, you're lying, but that's fine. So 
that's not my problem. We, we say it all the time, right? Like, for example, in our house, we say it a lot because I'll ask my kids to clean something up. And what do they do? They immediately say, well, I didn't make that mess. It's not my problem. I go, oh, <laughs> we're going to play that game, are we? Well, I didn't wear your clothes, but I washed them, right? I didn't eat off your dishes, but I cleaned them. Not my problem, right? How does that feel? Oh, I don't like that. And I said, oh, good. Well, guess what? It is your problem. I don't care who made the mess. It's getting cleaned up, right? We do it all the time, even if we don't think about it. Maybe it's at work, right? Something goes awry and, and you're stuck late or something and, and you're frustrated because you keep thinking to yourself, well, this isn't my problem. I shouldn't be here, right? I shouldn't be dealing with these things. But, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes that's just what you do. And then it gets even bigger, though, right? It goes from our households and our workplace to, like, societal level, right? And we do this. this it's not my problem sort of stuff with big issues, big problems, right? Like systemic racism, or, or maybe the, the wealth and, and, and the health and of our neighbors. Or maybe even further, it's the, the hunger that we see all around us, people in need. We try to disassociate ourselves and we say, yeah, well, those things don't affect my daily life and, and I don't think I'm racist or I don't think I'm those things, so this isn't my problem. This is a matter for another person another time. We, we do this all the time. I do this all the time. And it's this last grouping that then therefore shakes me to my theological core as I hear our text in Cana here today. Because I have to ask the question then, is human suffering a direct result of this divine reluctance? In other words, is Jesus' response indicative of God's larger indifference towards our needs? Is this a, a divine sort of not-my-problem by the Creator, right? And, and maybe the argument we could give is like, oh, well, the timing is off, right? It's just an issue of timing. Jesus does say, well, it's not the right hour. The hour has not yet come. I don't like that either. Because it's easy for the divine to say that, right? It's easy for God to say, well, it's not the time yet, because God exists kind of beyond time, right? We, we, when we talk about God, God existed not only at the beginning, but even a little bit before. And God will exist long after we're gone. In other words, God has the time to just sort of put it off, to procrastinate. But we don't always have that luxury, particularly in our times of need, when we are facing life's problems. We're going into year three of this pandemic. Now's the time, right? Like, just can we just snap our fingers and get rid of it, right? I, I would love for this problem to disappear. Or what about the person going into month three of their chemotherapy and are unsure of what the results are going to be? They don't have infinite time to just say, it's not my problem. Or, or what about the person who's starving and hasn't eaten in three days? It's easy for us to say it's not my problem, but for that person who's feeling those hunger pains, it's kind of a big problem. And, and the problem is now. The hour is now where they need God's help. And if we read the rest of John's gospel, we have to wait all the way until chapter 17 to find out when the hour does arrive. In other words, 15 more chapters unfold. Essentially, the entirety of Jesus's public ministry has to unfold until that hour arrives. And it arrives as Jesus himself is preparing for his death. As Jesus is praying alone in the garden. And this is what Jesus says. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you've given him authority over all people to give eternal life to whom you have given him. 
I think it's important that we keep in our minds this little text at the end as we hold it in tension with our text here today. Because when I pray, I pray sort of with the confidence that Mary directs Jesus with today. When I pray, I expect results. I expect signs, right? I pray, I have a need, I have a problem. God's going to hear it, and God's going to give me whatever I ask for, whatever I want. In my mind, that's how prayer should and needs to work, right? I have a problem in this hour, so the hour is now. And so I'm desperately frustrated when the response to my prayers aren't how I want them to be, or perhaps even more important in this conversation, when I want them to be. I want my answer. I want my divine sign now because I'm living through this problem now. And it's in that moment of deep frustration that I have that I have to be reminded of these words, these words about eternal life, the words of the steward this morning who says you've saved the best for last. Because I think that's the key for us. God's signs, God's work, God's glory doesn't always match up with our expectations, right? It doesn't always match up with what we think it should be. But the truth of the matter is, no matter what our expectations are, the one thing we can always expect from God is that God's final answer for us is always a resounding yes, a resounding yes to life, to life eternal, to life made perfect which is helpful because this life is anything but perfect. And yet there is God offering us this opportunity to know that even when we cry out in need, God hears us and responds to us. God invites us into the wedding feast that knows no end. And I love that phrase, the wedding feast that knows no end. A direct sort of callback to this text this morning that we use in our liturgies not only for weddings, but also for funerals. In times of celebration and in times of need, we pray that God will welcome us into the wedding feast that knows no end, much like the wedding feast here this day in Cana. But in the meantime, my encouragement to you is this. Just because we sometimes feel like we experience this divine reluctance doesn't mean that we should be reluctant to go to the divine. That when we have need, when we have problems, when we feel overwhelmed by this world and all that it throws at us daily, that we can't be reluctant in asking for help. And I pray that we have the same confidence that Jesus' mother had for him. That when we ask for help, God will respond. That God will give us a sign, even if it's not the one or the timing that we perhaps were looking for. And maybe, just maybe, as we are awaiting for that hour to arrive, maybe we can be a sign of God's glory in the world for others. Responding to those in need. To be that revelatory sign for those that need whatever they need. Right? To go and to serve others in such a way where we no longer say, that's not my problem, but instead stoop down and say, how can I walk with you in this problem? That is what it means to be a Christian. To see that my problem is yours, as we will find out next week in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he says the body is so interconnected that when one part of the body hurts, the entire body hurts. That 
is how we function as the body of Christ. And that's why this day, I hope that you leave this place knowing that you are heard by God when you pray. That God walks with us. And then I pray that you leave your reluctance aside to ask for God to walk with you. Thanks be to God. Amen.